Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Would you please stand with me as we read God's word? Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you all again. Um, let's pray one more time. Living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we are going through the book of First Peter, and um, it's been quite the journey for me as I share uh, not just what I'm learning, but really what God has been pulling me through. After I shared last week, multiple people were so blessed by the message I shared last week. They asked for the link to the scale that I mentioned. And so I think Amazon, I, I wish Amazon would give me a little something. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we're going through, not just personally, but I believe that our church is going through. And today we want to go in the topic of suffering. And we touched upon it multiple times. But this is an important topic, especially, I think, of because of uh, what we're probably facing today. I don't know if you've heard, but you may have heard something uh, called the prosperity gospel, the prosperity gospel. And it, I guess I was asking myself, is the prosperity gospel trying to make some sort of comeback? And you can patch it up all you want, but... To be honest, it's the same raggedy dress. We see it in different forms. We see it in, you know, kind of almost coming into certain churches, certain circles. We have to see, how do we know? That's the question. How do we know first if it is the prosperity gospel? How do I know if this person preaching is prosperity gospel? And you'll hear things, I think, like uh, little triggers, things that you can sense it's, if they say stuff like, it's not God's will for you to suffer from this blank disease, whatever it is. It's not God's will for you to suffer like this. And the questions arise from that. Is all suffering evil? Or are, your, are you suffering because of evil? Is your suffering only because of evil? Is your poverty your fault? Or your lack of faith. And these things 
should be kind of coming up as questions as we try to figure out how do we know it's the prosperity gospel, but what is the prosperity gospel? Stephen Hunt wrote this in regards to that. In the forefront is the doctrine of the assurance of divine physical health and prosperity through faith. In short, this means that health and wealth are the automatic divine right of all Bible-believing Christians and may be procreated by faith as part of the package of salvation since the atonement of Christ includes not just the removal of sin, but also the removal of sickness and poverty. So there, there's a little bit to that. And we may think we really know what prosperity gospel is, and I think it's good if we have a basic understanding in the very least. Um, a lot of people believe that it starts with this Pentecostal movement and people join this Pentecostal movement and a lot of people believe maybe even the father of this prosperity gospel movement was Oral Roberts. And Oral Roberts uh, started in maybe the late 30s, 40s and he would go and he would start praying and then people would be being healed. In, and then he would have healing um, meetings or healing revival meetings. Um, it became so popular and people were giving so much money to this, this cause um, that now we see not just remnants but people who have followed in Oral Roberts' footsteps, people like Benny Hinn and you know Pat Robertson, Robertson and all these people, um, they have followed in these footsteps. In fact, uh, Oral Roberts, um, Kenneth Copeland, I don't know if you know any, these, these are like TV personalities. Um, Kenneth Copeland is now a huge multimillionaire teaching on TV, the Prosperity Gospel, and he was just uh, the chauffeur of Oral Roberts. So he was his pilot and chauffeur, but now you see him on TV all the time. But when this started happening, uh, leaders of not just the Roman Catholic Church, but also leaders of all these other religious denominations wanted to verify. So they actually questioned the authenticity of these healings that took place. So in the mid-50s, a step that would now become familiar with every single person that would come up after Mr. Roberts, uh, a group of Arizona ministers got together and they offered to pay in the 1950s $1,000 to anyone who had been healed by Mr. Roberts and could provide medical proof. And they didn't receive any response. Still, thousands of people would say, I was, they would assert and they would be sure that they were healed and cured by his hand alone. And um, people would, you know, continue to follow put in millions. At one point, one year, I believe Roberts University made over $110 million um, with all the followers donating and taking courses in his school. And so the question now comes up, what is going on? And is this stuff really authentic? And why is it that so many people follow this? And what's so wrong about it? These are questions that we should ask, especially as we go on to today's topic. And I really believe the great abuse of the prosperity gospel is that it abuses the poor. The great abuse of the prosperity gospel is that it abuses the poor. Um, 
Pastor Paul, who's now teaching children, we, we both, um, at one, one time in the past, we went to this one conference, and um, the teacher there was teaching about giving. And at that point, he would say things, uh, he would mention this one parable, not parable, but one time Jesus was at the temple, and he saw the widow give two pennies. And you might be familiar with this story, and would give two pennies, and Jesus would go, look, you know, this woman gave more than anybody else. And saying, in that same way, we should also give. And I raised my hand in the middle of this uh, lecture, and I said, is that really what Jesus meant? And this person got really mad. Uh, he, he was very offended that I would even ask that question. Uh, because if you really look at the context, remember, context is everything. And that widow's mite thing is, is a burger. And I talk about the burger a lot. And the buns before the burger of the widow's mite is Jesus condemning the temple and its leaders. So he's condemning the leaders, the scribes. He's saying the temple is going to fall in the middle of the widow's mite is there. So it doesn't make any sense that he would start condemning. He's like, oh, by the way, she's awesome which he doesn't say, and then continue to condemn the church. In fact, couldn't have Jesus said, how dare you abuse the poor? She gave everything that she had and then continue to condemn. And so uh, this person was pretty, pretty upset with me that I would bring it up. Uh, but this teaching continues to go on in the churches today. And you may have heard that widow's might story, and we won't go too much too deep into that today but you may heard it in the context that it's because the widow gave two pennies and everything that she had for she didn't have money to eat you should do that and give to the church um no the answer is no and so that that is an a blatant abuse of this prosperity gospel that's coming out benny Ann and other prosperity preachers um preach basically the same thing but when people come out and say um, are these healings authentic? Does, does anybody have any medical proof that they can show us? Every single one of them, including Benny Hinn, would nonchalantly say no, no, and just brush it off. There's no medical proof. I'm not saying healings aren't real. That's not the case. But these, um, like, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar, but you'll see, even if you don't know names, you'll see preachers up on TV doing these, like, spiritual fireballs at people. And they go, Rawr! and then instead of doing the, the chant, they'll say something like, Jesus is like, Jesus, you know. And I find that really interesting, too, because we use the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but also our lover. Um, we don't use it as a spiritual fireball to enact certain miracles. And, you know, I, I, I feel like, wouldn't it be weird if I took my wife's name and I did the same thing? Like, yes, sir. Yes. You know, I will just start doing these things. Why is it? Why is it okay then if we use our our Lord's name, our ultimate lover, the our groom, um, in a way that we're just like fireballing people, uh, the spiritual kamehamehas, and it's just, you know, it's just really like if that, if that didn't throw us off, then there's this really great interview, and I really enjoyed it. Um, Benny Hinn actually got an interview with CBS, and this interviewer said, what do you say about the people or to the people that are accusing you that you are deceiving them? 
And he got all riled up and he said, you know, that's a really great question. I'm really happy you asked that. And he, he answered it this way. He said, ultimately he answered it. He, he did a, a few turns, but he answered. He said, you know, you can't, fool, you can't fool all the people all the time. So he's saying, you know, if I really was deceiving people, I would have eventually have been caught because you can't fool all the people all the time. But this interviewer was smart, and he, he replied, he's like, no, no, no. You only have to fool some of the people some of the time. And then I really liked Benny Hinn's reaction because he smiled like, that was good, that was good. And he was just smiling and laughing, and then they moved on to the next question. And I was like, wait, he just caught you. That was amazing. Anyway, uh, but that's, that's the question I think that a lot of us, especially if you are maybe in the 30s or 40s or even 50s, people who grew up in the 1950s all the way up to like 80s televangelism. And now we have our younger millennials that don't know anything about this. And so um, I think it's important that we bring it up. Um, Benny is trying to make a comeback and millennials have no idea. It's like, oh, he's awesome. He did the spiritual fireball and I fell to the, the bathroom like wall. It was amazing. And um, just got to say, it's been done before, and, you know, he's been caught for tax evasion, but whatever. Um, that's the question. Why can't he, right? Why can't he? Why can't I do this? Why can't I just do this? Why can't God just um, heal people in these healing tents or these ministries that are coming up? Are you saying that God can't do these things? And that's the response that you'll get from these really strong prosperity gospel who claim to be Pentecostal. But why can't God do that? And I believe that's the wrong question. The real question should be, why should he? Not why can't he, but why should he? Um, David W. Jones writes this, in the light of scripture... In light of scripture, the prosperity gospel is fundamentally flawed. Jones says, at bottom, it is a false gospel because of its faulty view of the relationship between God and man. Simply put, if the prosperity gospel is true, grace is obsolete. God is irrelevant. And man is the measure of all things. Whether they're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the atonement, giving, faith, or prayer, prosperity teachers turn to the relationship between God and man into a quid pro quo transaction. So... I really do sincerely believe that if you read, and we have been reading 1 Peter, as we read it, there's no way these two can align. These two cannot align. Like if I pray hard enough, God must answer. Or if I give enough tithing, God will make me rich. This kind of thinking is saying that if I just do enough, then God has to, has to answer my prayers. And here, Peter doesn't say that. In fact, he does almost the opposite, doesn't he? As what was read today. Um, one thing that we did go over last week and what we'll go over this week is about suffering. But last week, we talked about the necessity of suffering. This week, Peter is talking about the normalcy of suffering. One thing the prosperity gospel misses is this huge topic in Christianity that readers are hit with 
over the head in Peter's first letter. There is a biblical necessity and normalcy of suffering. And he says this in the beginning of this passage, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised. There is a normalcy of suffering in Christian life, but I'm going to go further and say there is a normalcy of suffering in all life. All life. It doesn't matter if you're Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, atheist, there is a normalcy of suffering. Suffering is in every single person's life. But he says, don't be surprised at your suffering. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you are going through as believers of Christ. But instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. People and Christians took this very seriously. Even in the earliest church, centuries of the church, they treasured accounts with joy. The martyrs that died enduring suffering for Christ's sake. Even we know in Christian history that Peter is the one that was martyred too. In fact, they were going to crucify him just like Jesus. And Christian history tells us that Peter said, no, I have no right to be crucified like Jesus. Crucify me upside down. So he's known to have been crucified upside down. But from the earliest centuries of the church, they treasured with joy the martyrs that suffered for Christ's sake. Uh, the letter from the church of Smyrna in the second century describes the martyrdom of Polycarp. He was the bishop there. And after the old man had been brought to the arena, the proconsul said and urged him, offer your incenses to Caesar, take an oath, and I shall release you. All you have to do is curse Christ. And Polycarp replied this, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they tied him to the stake, and Polycarp prayed to be received by the Lord. And all the Christian history and people that followed who were rejoicing, they believed that he was received and is, is quoted as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. There are many, many other martyrs that took place um, that were there, that existed, that the Christian church had. Um, most, most recently, there is a Cuban poet, um, Armando Valadares. I, I hope I'm saying that right. But Armando Valadares, for 22 years, was a prisoner of Castro's regime in Cuba. And he, came, he shares about how he came to trust in Christ. And he says, those cries of the executed patriots, long live Christ the King, down with communism. So people were being executed. Christians are being executed in Cuba in the 1950s, 60s. But they, as they were executed, they would scream and shout, long live Christ the King, down with com communism. He would say, awaken them to a new life. The cries became such a potent and stirring symbol that by 1963, the men condemned to death were gagged before carrying, carrying down and being shot because the jailers would fear those shouts because these shouts, even though they're being killed and martyred, they were riling up the people. They were giving people hope. And this person actually became a Christian because of it. 
eventually became, I believe, uh, humanitarian uh, something for Ronald Reagan. But, um, well, I guess the main point is people have seen that suffering isn't necessarily always a bad thing. In fact, Peter is saying rejoice. And when we start thinking about it, aren't I really scared, though? Who's going to say, please, I would like to suffer? Who's going to stand up and be like, I will suffer? In fact, when Peter initially did that, he's like, I will endure everything. He's the first one that denied Jesus three times. And I believe that sometimes we have to remind ourselves, just as Peter is reminding the church, that we don't suffer for nothing when we suffer in Christ's name. And uh, Pastor Paul mentioned this before, but Angela and Joe just recently had a baby. That's why they're not here. And Chloe was born on Friday morning. And whenever I go to see a new baby, the first thing that people always say to me is, when are you going to have a baby? Which I just push to the side. And so the second thing that I think about is, wow, the mothers must have gone through a lot. That's the second thing I think about after people always ask me, when are you going to have a baby? Uh, now, now that I'm married, I just, I just point to my wife. It's like, it's on her now. And she loves that. Um, but I'm just kidding. She doesn't. Um, but the second question is really what I want to go over. I think mothers really do have, for me, an undoubtedly a very deep, if not the deepest love for their children. I think it has a lot to do with the antenatal care that they had. Um, they held them for 10 months inside their body. It was like they were one with them, even though they were separate. And... You know, I'm, I'm sure, like, factors outside of antenatal bonding, like hormones, experience, and even our own childhood will uh, together influence the bonds between mother and child. But we all have this innate knowledge that a mother's love is incredibly deep, unlike any other. And it's interesting, though, because uh, I met this one man who asked me if I had children. And I said, no. And he said, well, how do you teach about children to parents then? And then I said, I don't, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but I, did, I didn't want to get into argument with him. So I, I didn't want to say, how did the Roman Catholics do it when they're single and unmarried too? Um, I didn't want to get into argument. So I just said, I don't. And then he just laughed. But... You see here that Paul, Apostle Paul, also says something like this, which is very intriguing. He says in Galatians 4.19, he goes, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul wasn't confused about his gender or about his natal like uh, season. Uh, he was saying, this is how much I love you. I love you. And I'm anguished like a mom is in anguish and pain of childbirth. This is a man talking, a single man, mind you. And not just apostle, the great apostle Paul. Jesus himself relates as a mother would when he, in both Matthew and Luke, 
would go to Jerusalem and he would say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem city, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. This is how much it killed Jesus inside and because he loved them like a mother. Hen loved her chicks like a mother loved her children and he wanted to gather his children together but they were refused. That pain, if you're a mother and you understand that pain, Jesus is saying that's how much I wanted you to come to me. And we see that this suffering, this intense suffering also brought light of something and especially in the case of mothers who give birth there is this deep and profound connection between suffering and joy but not only that it is also biblical um, and he goes Peter continues on by saying if you're going to suffer then don't suffer as a murderer thief evildoer or meddler I really love that last word meddler um, don't suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, you get it, but meddler. It's people who love to meddle, get into other people's business, like, oh, what, what, what's going on, guys? <laughs> like, what are those people? The, you, you meddle, you suffer. It's, it's one of those things, and you will suffer. And that kind of suffering isn't the good kind either. So I think the line, mind your own business, is such a blessing. So next time you want to bless a neighbor, just share that. It's like, mind your own business. Mm, you're welcome. But um, if you suffer, then you suffer for Christ. And he says, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in Christ's name. And so there is this suffering that is definitely going to take place. But if you're going to suffer, don't do it as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or a meddler. But do it for Christ. Because Christ is where you will get the glory. Um, and this is where it really gets interesting when we go on to verse 17. Because he goes, it's time for judgment to come at God's house. Or judgment to being at God's house. And you're just like, what? What's going on? God's house judgment? And this is what Wayne Grudem writes. He says, while this may first seem harsh, for it implies that at times it is God's will that we suffer... Upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found than this. It is God's good and perfect will. For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and its duration, a limit set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father. And therein also lies the knowledge that this suffering is only for our good. It is purifying us, drawing us closer to our God, making us more like him in all our lives. In all of it, we are not alone. Though we can depend on the care of a faithful creator, we can rejoice in the fellowship of a savior who also has suffered. We can exult in the constant presence of a spirit of glory who delights to rest upon us. That suffering is momentary, just as it was for Jesus. Jesus is the one that led the way. And even though it's intense, we are assured that it is not as intense as what Jesus went through. But it is intense so that we can also share in his glory. And in this, in this part, you know, Peter is reminding us, 
judgment has come. But he's also showing us, hey, this is a short time. It's not, it's not going to last forever. Um, that actually does help. It helps me. And I hope it helps you. People who are on, let's say, a diet and or a fast, um, you can get hangry. Uh, you can be prone to hanger, uh, as I am. And you can just react. It's like, oh, if it was forever, that would be terrible, terrible. If I couldn't eat, let's say, what I wanted to eat forever. But if I know it's a short time, even though it's suffering, I can kind of take it. The more intense it is and the more serious that suffering is, we also remind ourselves, just as we remind um, the people that were being martyred for Christ, this is temporary. God has a limit. And this is so that we can not just be refined, we can be honed, but we can be closer to God. And that song, uh, Refiner's Fire, is so calming. Refine, but... Honestly, the refiner's fire is anything but. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt like a mother. I, I remember I used to say that in my mother's side of the family when I was a kid. If something happened to me, ah, oh, that hurt like a mother. And it would make all my aunts laugh. I suppose it's because my mom gave them pain too. And they, they could relate with me. But one of the things that we have to also realize and recognize is that it is going to hurt. The refiner's fire isn't just some kind of, oh, calming, refining. It's not like you're in the sauna. It's like, oh, this fire. That's not fire. It's going to hurt. Uh, it's not like you get a little sweat going. It's like I could feel the fat melting off of me. It's going to hurt. And the, th the way that, <clears throat> excuse me, that Peter encourages us is showing us that, look, it's going to go to everybody. And it starts at the church. And you're like, whoa, that's, that's really interesting. That's really interesting because the way we now have to understand suffering is we need to understand it in light of not just God's will, but also Christ's suffering. Because Christ was righteous. Yesterday, if you were at our morning meeting, I mentioned a little bit about Job. And one thing that, and, you know, the question that people always ask was, Job, did Job sin? Did Job didn't? Did Job not sin? Was he righteous? And I got to say, Job was righteous. Job was so righteous that Ezekiel would say that God said to the people of Israel that even if Noah, Daniel, and Job prayed, God would not listen. Ezekiel would put Job in one of the most righteous in that category because God was trying to make a point. He was making this emphatic point. Even if these insanely righteous people prayed for you, I'm not going to listen. There's going to, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna die. There's going to be exile, that kind of thing. So even if Noah, Daniel, and Job prayed. So Job was righteous. What was the point, though? The point was Job could not save himself with his righteousness. As righteous as you think you are, you cannot save yourself. And continue to talk about this uh, Jewish person I had a conversation with. He, he, he claimed to know a lot. He's like, you know why there are Christians is because, you know, these Christians didn't want to follow the 613 misfots, which is the 613 laws that the Jewish people made. And I was just nodding my head, yeah, probably not. But, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to be like, the Mizfat was actually made in like the year 
thousand, uh, whatever. Um, but um, you know, can that's the whole point? Can you save yourself by following six hundred thirteen laws? Can you save yourself by being as righteous as you can? We're not even as righteous as Job. That's the point. We're not even as righteous as Job, and Job could not save himself with that righteousness. No matter how good and righteous Job was, he could not save himself. But there was a man who was ultimately, insanely, absolutely, perfectly righteous. And he suffered and died so that we can be saved. There was a man who saved us with his righteousness and we believe that man to be Jesus Christ he is the one that came and saved us through his suffering not our own righteousness can we be saved by not by being so good and moral can you save yourself and even if you thought you could save yourself look at us where is that evidence And consider what God said to Jacob, uh, Job. God shows up to Job and he goes, can you, do you, have you, where were you, who are you? He does all of it. He asks the can, do, have, where, what, how, who. And he asks them all to Job. And Job can only respond, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes you know being righteous or suffering what we have to understand isn't so that we can have this quid pro quo transaction quid pro quo of course meaning favor for a favor it's not a favor for a favor transaction with god if i do this god is gonna do this if i do this god has to do this that is not how this relationship works we suffer yes we suffer because through our suffering, God is showing us that he is going to bring us closer to him. That is amazing. That alone will be like, whoa, that's nice. I would like that. In our suffering, we have a relationship with God. And in the name of Jesus, then it says in verse 14, then you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. This is what Jesus also says, the Spirit of God rests upon me. That means in the work, man, now that I have power, now, now I, have, I could do all these things. Um, E.P. Connolly writes this, The reality of our suffering for Christ becomes a pledge to us of the reality of our belonging to Christ. That in itself brings joy to our hearts. It also strengthens our hope. If, like Christ, we suffer according to God's will, we know that, like Christ, we shall enter the glory of the Father. Joy lies before us, the joy of seeing Christ in his glory in the great day when he will come again. Suffering, then, is not a threat, but a promise. The pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of our lives, too. And just one last illustration. Um, you know, We've been hit with these violent weather cycles uh, for the past many years, but we know that in these violent weather cycles, uh, my wife the other day showed me because of the nor'easter, they said uh, the wind blew off the roof to LaGuardia Airport. I was like, no. And she showed me a video. Someone actually got that on tape, 
And as the winds were blowing, the roof of LaGuardia Airport just comes off. And I was just, I just started screaming because that's exciting. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, and then you see the roof just go away and it's gone. They don't have a roof anymore. Um, and these weather storms are intense. And I think just as these violent weather storms are, I think they're like these fiery trials. Man, it's going to hurt. It's going to kill. It's going to destroy. But of course, Peter didn't realize this when he was writing this. There was not the technology back then. But you know, if you're flying, you can fly over like a hurricane. It doesn't really affect you much. And so people flying is like, oh, man, that looks intense. But, you know, there's not much turbulence. But once you start heading down and the wind, then you can get knocked away and blown away. Um, people found that it really, it really gets bad. When you hit the altitude be, um, uh, from 1,500 feet and below, that's when it gets really bad. But as you get higher, it's it, it's it's pretty windy, but it's not as bad. And I and I thought this is exactly like the suffering, you know, because because Peter goes, um, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When this fiery test comes, the righteous are scarcely saved. That means we scathe by, we barely get by because the winds are bad, but it's not that bad. But what will become the ungodly and the sinner? And I see it as this, as we suffer, we are brought closer to God. Our altitude is going up, not physically, but spiritually. And as we get closer to God, it becomes bearable. Um, technology today is great. If you had the, if you had a, a child and you got the spinal epidural, that's great. Two thousand years ago, they didn't have it, and some people might be wondering how people had babies without the spinal epidural. Um, I don't know. First of all, I'm not a woman, and second of all, I didn't live two thousand years ago. But I do know this: thank God for spinal epidurals, right? And so. What we want to do is, wow, the fact that God is now, even in our suffering, bringing us closer to him so that we can handle the fiery trial, that when we come out of it, we are, we are not destroyed, but we are stronger, is something to sincerely rejoice about. There is a rejoicing that we can have when we suffer as Christians. Remember, not as meddlers. You know, if you're meddling, then once again, I want to give you the blessing by telling you to mind your own business. But it's not following the law. You know, Jesus is the one who went to the scribes and Pharisees who were giving all these rules and regulations. And he goes, in Matthew 23, he's the one that said, do and observe whatever it says, but don't do the works like they do. They preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. And he continues on by giving them seven woes. And he goes, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, people who are giving all these, like, burdens and laws and saying, you have to follow this. You can call it whatever you want, but you're not even helping them. And he gives them seven woes. That righteousness by following the rules as much as you can won't get you saved. It won't save you from the fire. But what will, what will save us is putting our hope in Christ. What will save us is knowing that when we go through suffering according to God's will, Christ is allowing us to follow in his footsteps. Maybe not the exact intensity, 
but in a way so that we can also share in his glory. This is how I believe we as a church will mature in Christ. As we mature in Christ, know that he gives us this deep and profound reason to rejoice in him. So I would like to offer this challenge to you. What is it that as a Christian you may be suffering from? Then I want you to lift it to the Lord and ask the Lord for strength and power and patience and guidance. And for him to just as Peter is encouraging the readers of his letter for God's spirit to encourage you now. So that as you have a relationship with God, there may be suffering that takes place. But having that faith that God has a limit and time to that suffering. But through this time, he is bringing us closer to him. And praise God for that. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for this time. And we want to thank you for the word that you give us. And we ask God that we would no longer take this lightly or simply but, Lord, we ask for understanding as we did in the beginning of this message. That the understanding of suffering, for if we suffer with Christ, we aren't to be ashamed. But we should rejoice because we will be glorified in God, in Christ's name. This is why we have this ultimate hope, not in our own righteousness, but in your saving grace. And just as Polycarp prayed... Lord, for us as well, we ask that we would be a rich and acceptable sacrifice, living sacrifices for your name and for your glory. As we pray and reflect, how is it that when we share our living faith that we suffer, and how is it that we are to rejoice as we go through this fiery trial and the tests that are upon us as a church, but also you individually? And as you lift up that heart to the Lord, know that it is God who is telling you, you are blessed and the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. So praise be to God. Let's pray.